Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry. We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth. What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates? How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients? What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry, and what are companies doing about it? So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. This episode is brought to you by the Eli Lilly and Company. Their Visiting Scientist Fellowship is a highly respected pharmaceutical industry-based program, which has developed competitive and marketable industry professionals since 1994. Check out their brochure for all the functional areas covered during this fellowship in the description. All right, everybody, thanks for joining the show. We're joined this evening by John Michael O'Brien, PharmD, MPH, um, who's the president and chief executive officer of the National Pharmaceutical Council, or NPC, which sponsors and participates in research on the appropriate use of pharmaceuticals and the clinical and economic value of pharmaceutical innovation. As president and CEO, John Michael is responsible for overseeing NPC's policy, research, and communications capacity, partnerships with other healthcare organizations, and strategic vision. Um, his broad experience spans the private sector, academia, and government. Prior to joining NPC, he was senior advisor to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Planning and Evaluation for Health Policy. He's also held senior policy positions in the life sciences and managed care industries, including at Care First, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, was a career official at um, CMS or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services during the Obama administration and served as a health policy fellow in the U.S. Senate. And I've missed plenty that <laughs> intro. John Michael, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Maybe we can start with uh, you filling in some of the gaps in that bio. So where'd you do your PharmD um, and kind of how did you find your way uh, to where you are currently? Uh, you know, I, I, I need to make sure you guys get the real bio, right? Which is I'm a pharmacist who wanted to be a sports broadcaster when I grew up. And, and, and instead, you know, teenage me was in awe of the way that medicine made a difference in my mom's life, right? Um, when, when I saw medicine work for her and I'm looking at the white pill and I'm looking at the green pill and I'm saying, you know, they're both round, they're both five milligrams. What the heck is in here that, that is making a difference in her life? That's what led me to start reading the early stories of, of, of drug discovery and, and, and scientists and how that all came about. So next thing you know, um, I'm applying to pharmacy school and I am just blown away by you know, the value of medicine. And I, I wanted to be so many different things, right? I was going to be, you know, a, an infectious disease specialist. I, I wanted to be a, a bench scientist. Uh, and and yet I, I found myself being drawn to how government and payer policy could be barriers to, to patient access, right? I, I was working for uh, a, an independent pharmacist in, in Palm Bay, Florida, and 
the letters that he got from Medicaid, the billing statements that, that he got from different payers made it very clear to me that what insurance you had affected the kind of care that, that, that he could provide. So ultimately I started doing State Pharmacy Association legislative days. And, and one day someone from the, the medical school at the University of Florida, where I started my pharmacy career, I, I finished my PharmD at, at Nova Southeastern down in South Florida. Uh, but they, they basically said, you're going to Washington this summer to be the American Medical Student Association's health policy fellow. And, and I said, there must be some mistake. I'm a pharmacy student, not a medical student. And they said, yeah, you, you just apply. So I, I faxed my application in, right? I'm a little older. And, uh, and, and long story short, I went to Washington in the summer of 96. They were debating direct-to-consumer advertising. The Clinton healthcare plan had just failed. So there's a lot of books and a lot of talk about what that was all like. And, and they passed a, a small law called HIPAA. And, and, and suddenly I caught what they call Potomac fever. Uh, I, I went back to pharmacy school and I realized that there were 99 classmates that were going to do a great job of taking care of patients one patient at a time. But I went back to Washington every summer and ultimately for my residency because I wanted to understand how these policies could help me help patients use their medicines millions at a time. So it sounds like your enlightenment about the importance of health policy occurred early, but that might not be the case for everyone, for everybody who's in pharmacy school or who's going through the life sciences. And so what, what would be your message to those folks about the importance of um, health policy and having an awareness of it as a professional? You know, it, it's funny. I, I think we're all aware of it, but we don't know that we're aware of it, right? So ev every time a patient comes in with a prescription and, and some insurance company says that, you know, they have to go through this process or they have to fail on these medicines first, right? That, that's because of the way that the, the private policy system is designed. Uh, when, when someone comes in, complaining about the cost of, of, of their medicines. Um, what they're really talking about is their benefit design and, and, and whether or not they have a drug deductible, whether or not they have to meet the drug deductible. You know, one of the things that I've never been able to figure out in, 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 in 25 years since graduating from pharmacy school is why prescription drugs are the only healthcare good or service that when you haven't met your deductible, you're paying your cost sharing based on the billed amount and not the allowed amount, right? When I go to a primary care doctor, he's billing 140. The insurance company's saying, we're going to pay you 80. And, and I'm paying a $20 copay, if anything. I go fill a prescription for, for insulin. Uh, they're charging me 650. You know, the, 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 the company that's making the medicine is, is taking home less than 30% of that. But the, the patient thinks that it's the cost of the medicine and nobody is talking about what's actually flowing to people that aren't making the drug or, or, or helping them use it. So I think that we are all affected by, by health policy and we don't necessarily understand how and why it affects us. And, and that's something that we study and research at NPC every day. That, that concept just blew my mind a little bit because right before this call, my wife and I were sitting down and going through some healthcare bills and, <laughs> and we were looking and going, okay, 
what and so it shows you the build amount the allowed amount and what you pay and we had bills that were deductible and once we had met the deductible and we were just having this conversation so the fact that that doesn't that there's differences between medical and pharmacy benefits and how you pay through your deductible how you pay and maybe maybe how does that apply to the donut hole with medicare and our our older citizens yeah you know and and it's and it's getting worse today right so i I have a problem and that is like, I could be sitting at a restaurant, I could be sitting on a bus and we can be having a conversation. And somehow when somebody around me starts talking about their medicine or their insurance, my ears perk up and that's, and that's all I hear. So there was someone down in Florida who every year I help them pick their health plan on the exchange. And I go through and I look at all the different plans and I look at all the, the different formularies and I help them pick the plan that, that best meets their needs. So last year, she finds a medicine that is that, that, that her doctor thinks is really going to help this unique condition she has. She gets um, patient assistance through one of our member companies. And she goes to the doctor, the doctor connects her to the specialty pharmacy. She gets the medicine. It really starts making a difference for her. She gets her explanation of benefits. Everything's fine. She goes to get her second fill. And, and they say, this time you're going to owe us this much money, you know, like $7,000. And she says, what do you mean I'm going to owe you $7,000? Like I have this card. And they said, oh, well, the insurance company took the money from that card. And, and they're not going to allow you to apply it to your deductible. Um, you're going to have to meet that on your own. So the, the arms race um, that affects patients and, and what they have to pay at, at the pharmacy counter with these things called accumulators or maximizers um, or alternative funding, I, I think, is another thing that's happening out there. Um, it, it, it's really frustrating and it really has the potential to hurt patients. Well. For something that affects so many people, um, and simultaneously, I'm sure everybody who works in this space has the right intention and wants to help patients, and yet we're still left in a situation where it's suboptimal for many. So what, what is it that brought you to NPC? Why, why do you have a belief that NPC is well-positioned to address these issues? Because you're clearly passionate about it and, and want to make a difference. What is it about NPC that you think is uh, is contributing to that positively? You know, it, it, it's funny. It, it, NPC, as you said, is a is a health policy research organization, and and I see our mission as deepening the understanding of the value that medicines have delivered to patients, but ultimately doing the research to try to shape the policy environment so that patients can get them and use them safely. We don't lobby. We don't have lobbyists. We're a team of experts that follow the data related to medicine and, and, and publish research to share that information to, to make a difference. When I was a fellow, you know, during the, the, the story we talked about, um, I relied on NPC's research to really understand how Medicaid worked uh, and, and, and really get a better sense of how the system that affected patient access really functioned. So fast forward, you know, 20 some years later, uh, Dan Leonard, the, you know, the, the exec who's been here for the, the, the previous decade had, had moved on and, and somehow 
my name came into the mix to, to be president and, and CEO. And, and as I started talking to the search committee and, and understanding, you know, what the organization did and how the organization did what it did, it, it, it dawned on me that my experience working for a company, understanding the value of medicine, working for an insurance company and understanding how that system works, working for Republicans and Democrats in, in the White House and the Senate kind of all came together and it became clear to me that this was how I was supposed to help patients, being at the intersection of healthcare, policy, and research. And I'm looking at your, uh, your career here. It's on your LinkedIn, wide open, right? Um, <laughs> and we've talked a lot about policy, but I'm seeing pharma, academia, CMS, health insurance, uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So you've you've kind of. It seems like health policy is kind of the the common thread, but as you think about your experiences through that time, what's one skill set that you've kind of pulled along with you that has made you successful throughout each of those experiences? You know the the common thread is patience, and when I was in. DC in the summer of 96, we, uh, we, we'd be at our, at our practice site, if you will, like for some people that was a nonprofit for other people that was Congress. And on Friday we would get together at Merck's headquarters and they would bring in a different guest speaker, right? So, you know, we had people like Donna Shalala, the secretary of health and human services at the time, the the late John Eisenberg, who you know was a leader at, at FDA and ARC and elsewhere, uh, and really the first physician I knew that had an MBA, and really the first you know one of the first people to really start talking about healthcare quality um, alongside uh, clinical care. So it became clear to me that healthcare was kind of like a continent of countries that spoke different languages and had different currencies, right? So what doctors wanted, what pharmacists wanted, what hospitals wanted, what, what payers and manufacturers, the, the languages they spoke and the things that they valued were all different. And, and my goal was to learn how to speak all of those languages, but ultimately to be able to translate them. So that if I was talking about the value of pharmacist services to a physician, I wouldn't talk about them in a way that would resonate to a pharmacist. I'd talk about them in a way that would resonate to a physician. Same thing when, when talking about the value of medicine to, you know, to a health plan. So ultimately, the, 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 the skill set that I, I, I tried to gain very early on was the ability to understand all the important parts of the system and how it affected what I cared most about, which was patient access to medicine. This episode is brought to you by UCB, which offers two-year fellowships for PharmD graduates in collaboration with IPHO. The fellowships at UCB provide rotational experiences within the functional areas of global regulatory affairs, patient safety, medical affairs, and global clinical science and operations under the mentorship of experienced preceptors. With an exciting and promising pipeline, the fellowships at UCB offer a unique opportunity to work in an environment that is inspired by patients and driven by science. 
Find out more through the link in the show description. I imagine it's been helpful as you've now looked to train and mentor others, you know, who are coming up in this space, more junior faculty and staff and students and, and fellows. Um, and so I'm curious, um, you know, what you've learned across those different, uh, you know, career settings about uh, the approach to training and developing and mentoring, you know, earlier career professionals and, and what the role of a fellowship may be in, in helping folks along their career path? You know, it's, it, it's very funny. Um, two stories. One, in Washington, there's this general rule that if somebody early in their career or somebody that you get connected to through somebody else asks for a coffee, you give them the coffee, right? And, and you sit down and, and you sort of tell them like, hey, this is my story. This is how I did it. Um, if that resonates with you, like I may have some suggestions for you. And they may be completely differently wired, right? And then I go, oh, you should talk to so-and-so, right? And, and ultimately, you know, the goal is to just help people find their path because that's what people did for me, right? And, and everybody else in this town with, you know, a, a big title um, feels like 15 minutes ago, they were just arriving in Washington, D.C., you know, with with a with a suit that didn't fit and, and, a, and a tie that they bought from a store in Georgetown when they realized they needed one. And and you want to help that next generation, you know, get where 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 they're meant to go. And one of the people that did that for me in pharmacy was Jim Alexander. I think I, I don't remember. I think it was 1994. I was at the APHA ASP mid-year meeting uh, in um, Panama City, Florida. And, and Jim was there and he was just very open and talking about his career in industry and how his pharmacy training allowed him to be successful there and how he uses those skills to make a different, uh, make a difference in in the lives of patients. And he's always been very open and always been, been very interested in, in helping people get to, you know, the, the next step in, in their career. And that's how, you know, in, in 2005, I think I'm, 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 I'm working for a pharma company and we had a Rutgers fellow and suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's it's only been five years since graduation, but but I felt like, you know, my career had kind of come full circle and I'm finding myself working with fellows who are, are really only a few years younger than me at, at that point, but sharing with them the things that my managers and my mentors in the industry had had, had taught me. So I think there's just a general desire both in in Washington and in the industry um, to, to, to mentor those and, and help people get where they're supposed to go. And I love hearing that from you. Um, it, it, you. What I heard was regardless of title, it doesn't matter what your title is, who you are, it's important to help people. And when, uh, when Sergio and I were talking about starting this podcast, part of the, part of the uh, commonality between us is we, we get messages on LinkedIn and through other sources from students and fellows. And 
each of us takes every single one of those calls. And a lot of them, there's a ton of commonalities between them. And there's themes that arise from each of them because students are often looking for the same thing. Um, and when I, when, I, I, when I go back to choosing a fellowship, to me, it came down to who I worked with and who my mentor mm-hmm. was. That's how I made my decision. And that's how I ended up starting in consumer healthcare. I was drawn to an individual who I thought would be my mentor, who, funny, interestingly enough, didn't end up my preceptor by the time I got there. But um, and and when I when I speak with students, one of the things I always end with is don't don't forget you're not always going to be in these shoes. You're going to be on the other side of that table, and make sure that you give back to those who are looking for information and seeking information. And that's the impetus behind the motivating factor behind this podcast is to give information to people that they otherwise may not have by seeing through your eyes, John. I, I will also tell you that I feel like this generation is so much more prepared than than I was. Um, I'm I'm walking through the bio meeting in, in, in San Diego two weeks ago and you know I'm, I'm there a day early for a short course and and I'm walking through uh, the, the convention center and I see this 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 group of younger people walking by and and one of the the women is wearing a t-shirt that says pharmacy girls rock and and i take five steps and my brain says that's weird i'm, I'm not used to seeing like young pharmacists at, at at a bio meeting uh who is this person so i i, I run back to her and, and i say look I, i'm not trying to be creepy but like who are you and and she said my name's Jessica Waboku, I'm I'm a pharmacy student, and I am doing the scientist mentoring diversity program. And I said I'd never heard of this program. What is it? And she's telling me it's it's this program that finds you know diverse students in science careers and gives them the the mentors and and the skill sets and also the placements in in the industry to help them become successful. So, so Jessica and I are texting throughout the meeting, trying to find, you know, like a, a meeting to, to meet after to, to do a brief meet and greet. And, and it wasn't working with our schedules. So I, I just sent a text to her and I said, hey, look, I, I'm going to dinner tonight. Um, do you and like, you know, four or five, whatever uh, students from your cohort want want to, you know, meet for dinner? And and she says, yes, absolutely. And and, and she invites, you know, Collins and Tatiana and Zena. And, and we go have this dinner. And at the same time, I'm supposed to meet another friend of mine, who's the CEO of a stealth biotech company. And we're trying to figure out like when we can meet after dinner. And this dinner that we're having is so fun. Um, and, and I'm just blown away by the questions they're asking, right? Cause they are so far ahead of the curve than I was when I first became interested in industry. And I, and I said to Lori, I said, Hey, this, this dinner is going really long. It's a really fun crowd. And she says, who are you having dinner with? And I said, these students from the SMDP program. And, and she says, is there room at the table? I'm on my way. So, so next thing you know, someone who's leading a biotech company Sorry, is sitting with these students and she's blown away by the questions that, that, that they're asking. And, and that kind of, of information exchange is, is what really matters to me. And what impressed me the most, though, was the quality of their follow-up, um, how connected they've stayed with me, with her. And, 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 and it's just 
many people go into networking thinking like I need to build a network without understanding the importance of maintaining the network. And I feel like the four students I had dinner with that night are, are going to stay connected with and learn from everyone they meet along the way. And that's just really exciting. Well, they were fortunate to uh, to have come in contact with you. I mean, to bring together a group like that is absolutely amazing. Reinforces the value of networking, which I remember Jim Alexander drilling into us as, uh, as Rutgers fellows back when he was running the program. Um, and I think the good news is... Um, there's going to be an opportunity for an incoming fellow to work with you at, at NPC. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about, uh, about that. Um, I think it's clear why you started the program. You're a, a believer in fellowships. It's clear from your remarks thus far. Um, but what can a fellow expect um, from the NPC fellowship program? You know, well, we're, we're, we're really excited to be uh, launching a fellowship in, in 2023. We have had a variety of different fellowships before, right? And, and they've been more focused on health economists. And yet, Jim will tell you that he found his way into the industry because he was an NPC APHA intern back in the day. So I'm really excited to create a program that will allow post-grad PharmDs to, you know, really do that orientation in health policy, you know, learning more about the difference between Medicare and Medicaid and, and, and QHPs and, and commercial insurance than, than we get in pharmacy school. Um, also understanding the role of health economics and outcomes research and, and ultimately how that value can be used or misused um, by, by those who are trying to affect access to, to medicines. And, and beyond that, you know, I am I am I'm still in the process of what I have until July 15th to get my 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 recruitment brochure done. Um, but but what we laid out was, you know, the the opportunity to work directly with me, work directly with the chief scientific officer and and, and get that appreciation of how research and communications serve our members and ultimately they'll you know have responsibilities to present to our board of directors our board level committees our staff level committees and, and hopefully see the parts of the companies as well as the kinds of activities that really motivate them i want to i'm excited to hear about the fellowship it's going to be a great opportunity but i want to go back to what we were talking about before with the students every every fellowship interview season i go through and i think man if i were to interview against these students today there's no way anyone would select <laughs> me not a chance not a chance i don't know how it happened in the first place but um you brought up an, an important point and you talked about diversity and i was curious as as a health policy expert you know, what do diversity and equity mean to you in the context of health policy? Well, I, I, I think there's there's two important parts of that, right? One is in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, we talk about biologic diversity and how important it is for us to have medicines that help people whomever they are. 
And we recently published something that uh, we call the myth of average, right? We, we are becoming incredibly more targeted in the way that we develop medicines to help people based on their biologic makeup or the biologic basis of disease. And yet we have these one size fits all policies that don't necessarily reflect the individual differences of, of who people are and, and what their um, biologic makeup is. It's also interesting and important because, you know, 20 years ago when people were first starting to talk about quality in the concept of, of healthcare, we now understand that where your zip code is can be as important to the outcomes that, that you achieve than what your genome is. And, you know, when I was a student at, at Hopkins where I got my MPH, I, I used to drive up to Baltimore from DC and I'd go past the University of Maryland Medical Center. And I would see patients standing at the bus stop, you know, holding their discharge papers in one hand and, and, and their belongings in a pillowcase in the other. And I'm thinking, no matter how good the patient counseling uh, or the discharge counseling the pharmacist provided that patient received, they may not necessarily be going into the best environment to be able to use these medicines more effectively. So as our payment system starts becoming more focused on value-based care, understanding the importance of social risk factors or social determinants of health, I, I think is, is something that has become even more important to, to our industry. And, and the third thing is, you know, from a, from a corporate culture or, or find, you know, joy in work perspective, uh, I, I think it's really important for people to be comfortable enough to bring their best selves to work. And, and, and regardless of who people are, we need to appreciate the diversity of thought, the diversity of opinion. I think it helps us do our jobs better. It's not something that, you know, people are supposed to do. It's, it's something that we want to do and need to do because it makes us all better. It's funny. Um, I was at a, a work event recently and uh, I, I noticed a colleague who kept her arm turned over. And I, and I said to her, what, what's going on? She said, well, I have a tattoo that you can see with this shirt. And I looked at her, I said, who cares? <laughs> be you, yeah. be you, be comfortable. I hope you can be comfortable with being you. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it, it's such a, a, a different world than when I first applied to school and, and you had to check a box that said, you're gonna be a hospital pharmacist or a retail pharmacist. Um, you know, we, we were attracting a far different crowd of people who, you know, some like to be outgoing, um, some, some don't, some like interacting with, with people, some like being in a, in a room doing research on their own. And there, there is just so much that we all gain by working with people who are, are, are different than, than, than we are. But I, I also think that it's incredibly important for 
people to appreciate that we can learn something from everyone, even if they don't look like me or sound like me. And, and that's something that I, I've been very lucky to learn early in my career. It's amazing. The, the other thing I've taken away from this conversation is just the incredible opportunity that there is for pharmacists in areas that might not conform exactly to their concept of the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma proper, you know, that they're, um, your career is a great example of all of the different things that you can do with a pharmacy degree. And I know I'm excited and motivated by everything that you talked about tonight. Um, for those of our listeners, folks who are still in pharmacy school or folks who are considering fellowships, where might you point them to learn more about the options that they have available to them um, in terms of career paths um, in health policy areas that, you know, academia and all the things that you've talked about? You know, uh, I, I think there, there are organizations that pharmacy students don't necessarily hear about. And, and the one that I'm thinking about is Academy Health, right? So we have more research in pharmacy education than we ever had before, right? We, we, not, we don't just take classes in biostatistics, right? Many of us are expected to, to do our own and present our own research you know, somewhere during our, our pharmacy education. And if, if you're going into a residency, you're expected to go present a poster somewhere. But those are usually at pharmacy meetings. And when you look at an organization like Academy Health, the, the poster presentations are set up the same way, right? It's still the, the wood easels on the rollers and you bring your poster in the tube and, and, and you put it up on the board. But there are so many different topics that that are being talked about. And I, I really like organizations like Academy Health because it helps me and others appreciate big picture health policy. And, and that allows us to have a better understanding of how our own work about medicine use or, 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 or medication quality uh, ultimately fits into that big picture. Now, for people who are really interested in in health policy, you know, I, I, I like news services like Kaiser Health News, um, Politico Pulse, you know, has a, a version that costs a ton of money that comes out at six in the morning, but a free version that comes out every day at, at, at 10 in the morning. And reading those like their textbooks and saying, huh, I don't, I don't understand what, what this means. Um, I don't necessarily know what an accountable care organization is, let alone why this new change to the regulations that CMS is proposing you know, really matters. We, we just had a, a big announcement last week about a new, or earlier this week, about a, a new voluntary model in uh, oncology. And if you're interested in oncology and you're interested in value-based arrangements, right? Like this is going to have to become a part of your vocabulary. So finding the, the new services and the organizations that, that are talking about that becomes incredibly important. Now, this is something that is at the core of, of the National Pharmaceutical Council. So I do appreciate you know, people coming to our website, signing up for our new services, um, I, I tend to tweet about this stuff, you know, on Twitter under Dr. JMOB. 
and and my LinkedIn also has that stuff. So for for those people that are are, are interested in finding out more or more importantly, getting connected, uh, I, I strongly recommend those resources. Excellent. Well, I have one more question for you, and it's going to be the hardest question of the night. You've mentioned that you wanted to be a sports broadcaster. So if you had not gone into this career in health policy, what sport and what team would we be listening to you announce right now? You know, that that's a, that's a tough question. I, I, I would want to say the Cleveland Guardians, but but Tom Hamilton is just so good at his job, right? That that I that I don't think uh, I I would have been able to to beat him out for it. Um, but I am, you know, I am I am very lucky that uh, I, I did get that experience. I went to a, a junior college in Oklahoma for a little while. Uh, I, I got to call the football games for the the Tecumseh Savages. Uh, and, and one day in the aisles of a Safeway, um, I, I, I talked out loud to a friend of mine about our groceries and, and some little boy says, you're John O'Brien, the voice of the Tecumseh Savages. So I, I, I did have my, my celebrity moment for a time, but I am so much more grateful uh, to, to today to be standing at that intersection of, of, of healthcare policy and research. Um, because the, 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 the things that we've accomplished over the last 20 years, um, you know, curing hepatitis C, making HIV AIDS and, and some cancers, chronic diseases, coming up with medicines that, that, that train your T cells to, to fight disease from the inside. I would have really hated to, to have missed out on, on that experience. So, uh, I'm happy to get to go to, Guardians games like I like I did on Saturday, uh, but but to do the work that I do the rest of the time. That's really cool. And next time we have you on, we're going to have to introduce you as the voice, the former voice. Of, <laughs> I, I don't even remember what college it was anymore. I was laughing. It was <laughs> a high school. High schools in Oklahoma <laughs> have their own radio broadcasters. I, I guess that's what you do in Oklahoma. I've never been. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions. I'm I'm from Buffalo, and people tend to make jokes about Buffalo, but I'll tell you, it's a great place to be and a great place to be from. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of Cleveland Guardians fans in Buffalo where there's a division between the Blue Jays up in Toronto, two hours north. The uh, Cleveland is three, three and a half hours west. And then, you know, because you're New York State, even though it's the very west corner of New York State, people still root for the Yankees for some reason. But uh, it, it's it's fun to hear. It's fun to have this conversation. Um, but we're, we're kind of getting getting to the end of our time here. Uh, one one last, if there's anything else you'd like to share uh, that you think that listeners could benefit from or something you'd like to get off your chest, uh, please feel free to take a moment. No, you know, I, I just I, I just wrote a, a chapter for the book Letters to a Young Pharmacist. And and what I focused on in that book was that prescription medicines and healthcare writ large play such a huge role in our lives, the lives of our families, as well as the overall U.S. economy. And there are so many ways to help patients being in a non-pharmacy practice career. And sometimes the greatest differences I've made are when working for people who 
didn't really remember that I had a PharmD because that's not what the title on my business card, you know, really required. But what we learn in pharmacy school has the ability to make such a difference across so many different careers. So if you feel yourself drawn to a career in business, if you're interested about what goes on in Washington, if you're interested in, you know, the, 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 the sciences outside of the patient care setting, you are so exquisitely prepared to find that entry-level role in those places. But what you do after that has less to do with your PharmD and more to do with being able to listen, being able to learn, and being able to find the right mentors wherever it is you go. So that's why I'm just such a big fan of the work that IFO is doing uh, and, and helping people, you know, gain those skills, because I, I think they're going to serve them really well wherever they end up. Well, there is so much more that we could talk about. Um, this has been such a blast. We're going to have to save a little bit more for a future episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. And until next time. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to doing it again soon. This episode is brought to you by the Division of Pharmacotherapy and Experimental Therapeutics in the Eshelman School of Pharmacy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which has been offering numerous industry-sponsored fellowships for over 40 years. Fellows will obtain real-world research experience in their respective areas of interest through coursework, monthly forums, and seminars, followed by hands-on experience. Check out their brochure in the description. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help. Until next time, take care and stay safe.